Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you haven't heard, I have another crypto podcast called Unconfirmed. It's shorter, newsier, and comes out Fridays. If you haven't yet, go subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find out what I think are the top stories in crypto by signing up for my weekly newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Are you passionate about blockchain but fall short on the technical skills to build and deploy blockchain applications? Then check out SimbaChain, the smart contract-as-a-service blockchain simplification layer on SimbaChain.com and their new enterprise offering on the Microsoft Azure Marketplace. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. My guest today from Berlin is Luis Quende, the CEO at Aragon One. Welcome, Luis. Yeah, thanks for having me. What problem are you trying to solve with Aragon? The thing that we're trying to solve with Aragon is that human governance is very broken, both at like the micro level, like the way we interact with each other and the way we organize. Like It's very hard for someone in the world that is in Argentina to organize with someone from Iran, for example, because of multiple regulations that make it almost impossible. But also the macro level, like governance is broken and democracy is, I would say, in the last stages uh, of, of growth. And we need to come up with new systems that are better for um, human coordination, as we have seen in also in the West with like Donald Trump winning the U.S. elections and stuff like that. Yeah, well, actually, so what makes you say that democracy is in the last stages of growth? Well, I think if you look at like technological revolutions, they have this period sometime in which they um, they have like early adopters and then they grow and then they have like this uh, kind of productivity plateau in which they just kind of stabilize over time. Uh, and that means that we have taken the most out of them and now there is time for a new thing to come up. And I think we have taken out uh, the most of democracy already, at least in the West. And now new models have to come that are better for human coordination. And maybe even they come in new forms. Maybe they come in the form of smaller communities that coordinate between them instead of having like these huge uh, monoliths that we consider nation states today that are like hundreds of millions of people. So I, I think we're starting to experiment with new models. And so what does ideal governance look like to you? Well, I think that's a very hard question because that depends so much on like the the actual um, like governance model that we are looking at and, and the and the problem that we're trying to solve. I think in in terms of nation states, uh, it's very very hard to empathize with millions of people, and I think that's the number one problem in society today. Like, we cannot empathize with uh, another citizen because there are like a hundred million citizens in a country, and they are so different from one another. And so I think if we can start um, dividing that into like smaller units uh, that obey Dunbar's number, which is the number of people you can, your brain can empathize with, I think we may have better, um, you know, communities uh, rather than having these monolith nation states in which everyone starts fighting each other. But what is Dunbar's number? Isn't that a really low number? Like yeah, it's 150 like 100, or something? 150, yeah. So, every, so the world should be governed in little communities of 150 people? That's something that I really wanted to like experiment with. Uh, I would love to try that out. Try if you know having these smaller communities also improves meaning in life because I think uh, we have like a crisis of meaning right now. So like my generation, for example, like there are literally like social apps uh, in like Finland and, and the north of Europe to like connect uh, like teenagers because they feel isolated, and that's so crazy to me today. Uh, with like Instagram and Facebook and all of these things, we feel more and more alone than you know uh, any other time in life. And your generation, meaning, like, how old are you? Uh, I'm 23 right now. Yeah. 
And actually, why don't you tell a little bit about your story? How did you get into the blockchain space? For sure. So I got into software when I was 12 years old because of uh, Linux and free software. And it was kind of mind-blowing to me because I come from a humble family and the fact that you could basically um, get a computer and just start creating stuff and there was no limit. There was no need to like go to a store and buy anything at all. It was all for free and open. That was mind-blowing for me. And also that kind of post-capitalistic um, sort of like idea that people were working for free on the internet and they were like creating free software for other people to use it without any expectation of profit. That was I didn't understand uh, the, the reasoning behind it, and I still, I'm not sure I understand it yet, but it was so mind-blowing for me. And then uh, I saw Bitcoin in 2009 when the white paper came out. Oh. And yeah, and I thought it was a scam. Uh, I thought like, this is technically impossible. Uh, I didn't really even read the white paper. And then in 2011, I read the white paper, uh, and, and, and I was mind-blown. It was around the financial crisis that hit Spain very bad, where I'm from, and also hit my family very bad. And when I read the whole white paper, at the end, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to change the power dynamics of the world so much, and I really want to be involved. Wow. Okay. All right. And then I guess why don't you briefly fill us in and, you know, how you came from that point to launching Aragon? Yeah, so in 2013 or 14, I really got involved more and more into the Bitcoin space. Uh, I was doing some small projects here and there, but then I wanted to uh, do a Bitcoin exchange with a couple of partners I had uh, back in the day. And that didn't work out because of like we couldn't basically raise money for it. And then in 2014, we came up with Stampery, which is blockchain timestamping, basically. Uh, I think it's one of the main platforms that are uh, doing that now, although it took a long time for it to get any sort of traction. So we launched that uh, startup to allow people to like timestamp. Uh, we had the dream of like eliminating notary publics uh, using the blockchain, uh, which was a pretty obvious use case, right? Um, but then these things take a lot of time. And then in 2016, I went out of the uh, blockchain space for like a few months to uh, pursue something with my uh, with my now co-founder Jorge, which uh, we met when we Jorge. were like 16 and yeah. 16 What's his 15. last name? Uh, Jorge Izquierdo. Um, yeah, we met when we were like 15 or 16 uh, in in Spain via Twitter. And we were both like young hackers, and then we started working on multiple things. And then in 2016, I asked him to uh, to join a crazy idea I had related to patents and basically eliminating the patent system. And then at some point, we moved to the U.S. We did the whole like Silicon Valley thing. And at some point, we realized that the underlying issue wasn't really uh, the patent system in the U.S., for example. It was politicians and the power dynamics that you just don't want to change it. You just want to keep the patent trolls uh, trolling and these big companies to own these patents so they can have huge monopolies. And so at some point, we figured out the underlying issue was uh, governance of the of the country and of the law system and not patent like themselves. So we came up with Aragon. Yeah, well, also, I don't know. Do you remember that I interviewed you once about Stanford? Seriously? I did. Wow. Yeah. But the very first question I asked you was how you prevent lies or falsehoods from getting on the blockchain. And I'm just going to tell you straight, you didn't have a good answer for it. So I was like, "Mm -hmm." I still don't, I think. (laughs) What? I still don't have a good answer for another thing. Right. And and you were saying you wanted to be a notary system. So I was like, okay, this is like so far away Hmm. from being that. But anyway. All right. So before we get into Aragon, why don't we just like define... A few things because there's the Aragon Network, there's Aragon Association, there's Aragon One. So why don't you just like high level overview describe the you know the whole setup? Exactly. Yeah. So Aragon itself is the project and the movement that has the mission to create decentralized organizations for the world and to uh, basically allow the people to experiment with governance at the speed of software. And so for that, uh, we have the Aragon Network, uh, we have the Aragon Association, and a few other uh, entities. And so we have this like multi-team model in which instead of having one team that grows to like a thousand people, we want to decentralize also development. And so we have this model in which um, the holders of a token that is the Aragon Network token can vote proposals to basically govern the whole project. And so one one of the proposals or one of the ways that they, they can do that is to choose the development teams that are going to carry development. And so Aragon One uh, is a team I lead and that's uh, the foundational team uh, working on Aragon's development, but there is also Aragon Black, Autark, and there are many other Aragon, smaller Aragon teams that are working on the ecosystem. Then there's the Aragon Network, and the Aragon Network is like the broad uh, sort of DAO that governs the project itself. 
And uh, it also wants to provide services to other DAOs. So, for example, one of them is the Argon Court. We want to create a dispute resolution system for DAOs so they can use dry code, which is like, you know, smart contracts, but they can also use wet code, which is basically like, you know, human written agreements uh, that we are very used to in the, uh, like in the traditional world, let's say. So we can combine uh, the best of both worlds. So that's a little bit of an overview. Then we have also like a grants program called Argon Nest. And that uh, has been giving out grants for multiple things. We were the first ones to give grants to, uh, for Ethereum 2.0 development. Um, but that's a little bit of an overview of the ecosystem. Okay, yeah. And early on when you talked about Aragon 1, um, for listeners who know kind of how Ethereum development happened, there was a period uh, early on where there was the Ethereum Foundation and then ETHDEV was the company that uh, was formed to to do the development for the network. Um, all right. So then why don't we just start with like what it is and what people can do if they're, if they want to use this system? Yeah. So right now we have the Argon client, which is this app that allows you to create decentralized organizations. And so, uh, you can do multiple things. You can, for example, create like a, like a membership kind of organization in which, uh, you can literally just list members and manage funds, for example. That's a very, uh, easy use case that people are doing in the Ethereum community with other kind of DAOs, uh, like Moloch com- comes to mind and stuff like that, right? In which you have like a group of friends, uh, and then they put funds in and then they manage funds. That's like a very easy use case. But then you also have like use cases that are, I think, a little more ambitious that are more like open DAOs. In which anyone can join. Well, wait, actually, but to go back to the membership one, is that like a centralized type of entity using the Aragon network or? Uh, well, no, it'll be like a decentralized kind of entity that you create uh, on Aragon and then it's like a, uh, basically like a permission entity in the sense that like people have to vote for new members to come in. Um, oh, but okay. that would be something that would live on the Ethereum blockchain, would be like fully uh, decentralized. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then there is like, use cases that are more uh, in terms of like, you know, open, open DAOs. And so one of them that we are super excited about is fundraising. So there was this model proposed by Vitalik called uh, Daikos and uh, this model proposed by Luke from our team also called APRE. And so what we're doing here is we're basically creating a DAO that fundraises uh, money and then the token holders can decide to set what's called the tap rate. And so that's the amount of like uh, money that flows to like development teams to implement this idea for this project. And so the cool thing there is that basically you are like inverting the, the, the power structure. So token holders are the ones that control the project uh, and, the, and the money flows and not the other way around. So basically, I think with that, you can, uh, you can have fundraisers that are like 2017 scale, like, you know, very big fundraisers, but with accountability and transparency that we didn't see in 2017. So that's one model that I'm super, super excited about. And did that pass? Uh, well, that's going to be launching like a couple of weeks from now. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Because he, he's blogged about that for quite a while, I think. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, there is, I mean, in the, in the DAO space, there's always like, uh, it takes some time to actually implement things because everyone is so afraid of like consequences, right? So like when the DAO happened, uh, and the fork happened and all of that, it took years until like someone literally said like, you know, we're going to implement DAOs again. Uh, cause there's like the, those, uh, the, those things, um, that people, are really fearful about. And I think like fundraising is the thing that people are like very fearful about as well, right? Because we have a lot of like legal implications and the SEC and all of these things, right? And so, but that shouldn't impede us for innovating. That's why we're here, right? Uh, I'm personally not here to see that like there are SEC compliant ICOs happening. Like I don't really care about that. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get into the space to like, you know, basically facilitate the life for the nation state. I got into the state so we can replace the nation state. Okay. Well, so to tie all that together, I did want to ask you about, you know, this fact that you're trying to build a DAO because, you know, given the history with the DAO, that might seem kind of bold to some people because that was a huge failure. Um, so why did you decide to, to build a DAO and a platform for DAOs? Well, when we looked at the DAO, it was, uh, it was interesting because, you know, you look at it and the idea itself was really great. Then the problem was implementation, right? But it's one of these cases where it was very unfortunate that it was called the DAO, um, because then the whole DAO concept just got basically screwed over for years. But if you look at it, like the, the concept itself is a brilliant concept. The problem was implementation. And so if you're rational, you think, you know, uh, let's just make an implementation that works, right? Uh, and, and we invested a lot of money and time into making sure that this gets audited. And I think we've been live for like, um, a year and, and some months with no bugs, uh, found or critical ones at least. So, um, super, super happy about that. 
All right. So why don't we, we'll just talk about the platform. So you, you kind of actually walked through us a little bit. Uh, so if I have a simple DAO, like a membership thing, um, I can do that. So then actually talk about some of the other features that people can implement. Hmm. Yeah, so there are there is a system with like multiple apps that you can install and uninstall. You can think about it like uh, like as like Lego bricks. Like basically, you can build very basic, uh, very complex structures. Just like putting together these bricks that are very generic. And so by default, there is like a finance app which allows you to manage finances, uh, and then you can send the URL to anyone uh, for them to check the finances in a transparent way. There's a voting app that allows you to vote on stuff. And there are, there's a token manager app that allows you to like manage token balances, mint tokens for, for new people, uh, slash them as well. So uh, you can do all of those things. And then there are more apps that are kind of um, not by default, but that are super important as well. So for example, there is uh, this suite of apps for Aragon called Open Enterprise that allows people to manage like more like open organizations. And so, for example, you can have something like Gitcoin where you find bounties and, and, and people can come and claim those bounties uh, and directly on Aragon, on the, on the Aragon DAO. You can have like a dot boarding app, which is like another kind of mechanism for, uh, for boarding. You can have like an allocations app that allows you to have like multiple kind of bank accounts inside the DAO that are controlled in different ways and with different permissions of like who can withdraw money. So you can do all of these things that are very composable. I think right now we are starting to see that how people actually use it for for something because when you create a platform like at the end Aragon is like a, like a platform for these apps to be built uh, and then with these apps you create new organizational structures. But I think the interesting point is when you start having a critical mass in which you can like plug these components in different ways to create new models, and and that's where like composability gets seen. And I think that's something that worked out very well for Ethereum. Um, and now we're seeing, we're starting to see that for Aragon, although it takes a little bit to like you know from building a platform to like seeing how people use it and compose these things. And so just. To clarify something, because when I was browsing the materials about Aragon, for some reason, I got under the conception that companies could use it. And obviously, companies are centralized. So is that true or not true? Well, you can definitely implement a centralized hierarchical company on Aragon. Like, for example, Aragon 1, we use Aragon, but we are like a Swiss company. And we use it for finances. We use it for, uh, yeah, basically managing finances and, and voting. Uh, so we can definitely, you can definitely do that. I think the issue there is uh, the legal part of it. So, for example, in, in our case, uh, we implemented this functionality in the finance app so you can export a CSV because our accountants really wanted to. And, and I think if you want to do a, a simple stuff like that, you may use Aragon. Um, but if you want to do something more complex, you may want to use some kind of like legal wrapper. So there is this project called Open Law, and they built this very, very cool integration with Aragon and Wyoming LLCs. So they have this uh, online wizard in which you can create an LLC, and it automatically creates an Aragon DAO, and it links both. So like you have legal agreements that literally say, like you know, membership is going to be defined, and shares are going to be defined by this token app on Aragon. So when you create a new token on Aragon, it automatically um, basically is a legally valid way of saying, you know, that's a new share on the Wyoming LLC. So that's a very, very cool use case as well. How did that come about? Um, it was a few months ago, a community member called Ross. Uh, from from OpenLaw, and yeah, he just made it happen. I think they're looking to expand to like New York LLCs as well. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's very cool. Okay, yeah, I know Caitlin Long was like really instrumental in getting a lot of blockchain-friendly laws passed in Wyoming. So nice. I wondered if she was part of that. But um, actually, something else I wanted to ask about was earlier when you were talking about like how you can they're composable and like you can make different kinds of organizations so how are people using them and like are you seeing any innovative uses that you hmm. hadn't really thought of before well it was funny so like way before we came up with um aragon fundraising and implementing this fundraising mechanism on aragon we we saw a DAO that was basically they were like a very small smart contract that would basically use the finance app on Aragon and the tokens app on Aragon so that if there was a new deposit to the finance app, they would mint a new token for that member. So it was effectively fundraising before we implemented fundraising. Um, and that was, that was really funny to see. It's, uh, it's actually a very cool project. They are, um, and, and one of my, I think, favorite use cases, uh, most of the developers are based in Iran. So, mm. of course, like, you know, if you're based there, you're automatically discriminated in, in the whole world, right? So, like, I, I think Aragon was one of the only ways that they could have, you know, fundraise to build their, their, their software and their project. Wow. And so this is actually a perfect segue to my next question, because I was mm -hmm. wondering, 
So obviously we've got like the normal traditional legal jurisdictions all around the world. Mm -hmm. So how did those laws fit with or or not fit with uh, these entities that you're creating on Aragon? Well, it's the intersection between um, dry code and wet code, which is what like Nick Sabo used to do all these things. Uh, it's, it's very and, and just clarify that for people. So wet exactly. code is like human courts of law and then dry code is like code. Exactly. Okay. Computer code. Yeah. Smart contracts. And that's, uh, that's super interesting because, for example, when I think about, uh, you know, declaring taxes, right? So you want to declare your taxes, uh, you see your, your crypto portfolio, but then like, how do you declare a CDP? How do you declare an NFT? How do you declare an asset that maybe even like illiquid in the market? Like, it's just kind of so hard because the, the, uh, the system of, so like, you know, smart contracts are Turing complete. Um, and the way that the law works is that they try to cover every edge case, uh, with like, you know, regulation. The issue is that you cannot cover a Turing complete set of options with regulation because that's like infinite. Like every line of code may be like totally different and may do like a totally different thing. So like it's intrinsically impossible to make these two systems work. Uh, that's my, that's my sort of like idea that I have built over the course of the, of the past years. I think you can, you can implement something like these legal wrappers. So like you open a Wyoming LLC and then you have like shares on your um, Aragon Corporation and then like the finances. But if you want to install a new app on Aragon that is totally different, for example, this fundraising app or use like a bonding core for one of these like more business technologies, how do you translate that to the legal system is like totally, I think, uh, out of the out of the reach of the legal system. Um, so I think if we want to exploit the like 100% of the potential of decentralized organizations, we have to forget about the old and we just have to build uh, the new. Well, so then if someone's creating a DAO on Aragon and the different people that are using it are in different jurisdictions, then does that create problems for you know one or the other of them? That is a great question. Um, well, I think... You can, the way you can look at it, uh, and we've been looking at some of these jurisdictions, some of them may treat the DAO as a general partnership, some maybe don't. And the issue there, I mean, one of the issues with like how legality works these days is that it's not built for the internet. Uh, it's not built for a world where you can join a DAO uh, and just be part of it, right? So, and there are a lot of interesting questions that arise. So, for example, if you're a passive stakeholder of a DAO, let's say you're a token holder of, um, you know, MakerDAO, and MakerDAO does something that is illegal in one jurisdiction, which, I mean, it's not that hard. There are jurisdictions in which, like, many things are illegal. For example, think about uh, jurisdictions like, like Thailand or, or even Spain, where, like, you just cannot uh, insult the, the monarchy, right? So imagine that there is the uh, the Aragon Network DAO, which has the ability to do proclamations. So like to say, as a DAO, I proclamate something in behalf of my members. And this DAO insults the monarchy in one of these places. Um, are you liable now for that? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very hard question. And I think, I mean, I don't have the answer. I just think we should be brave and try to experiment with it. Yeah, actually, on a related note, and th this might seem unrelated, but I, I think it is similar. I literally just yesterday read this article where um, there was some astronaut who basically did something in space, mm -hmm. and um, and it, she, I guess, she was going through a divorce, and she accessed the bank account of her of her wife who she was separating from, and um, the wife was claiming that it was like a criminal act, and um, she was claiming that they had these shared financial accounts to, you know, manage uh, the finances for their son. And anyway, so, uh, but the article was saying like, there are no laws around like, you know, what, like if, she, if she's in space at the time, then like, you know, what, how, how do you manage well, that? So um, I agree that obviously now, you know, with blockchains also, there's like this whole new territory that opens up and it's not clear how these things will be managed. Um, but actually, yet another perfect segue, because I was going to ask you about disputes as well. And you have this whole dispute system uh, managed by the Aragon court. So what is that? And, you know, when do people use that function and how does it work? Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the most exciting parts of a decentralized organization uh, is that you may be able to just completely uh, create new jurisdictions on the internet. But the problem with the smart contracts is that they are really limited. So like you can encode a very small um, part of the of the world because of the mid space, because there are like like a lot of like human subtleties. So 
so you may be able to describe a lot of things with like computer code, but um, you cannot, for example, say, you know, um, Ethereum should know about uh, my tablet or about my computer, and when I leave a company, it should know that I need to like return that right uh, to my to my employer. And so, the the idea with the Iron Court is that you can also add this uh, human written language or, or human written um, code or, or basically like a contract to a smart contract. So in that way, you have the best of both worlds. And the problem there, when we thought about it, was like, right, this is amazing for uh, this particular solution. This is amazing for basically creating or adding a lot of capabilities to decentralized organizations that they didn't have before. But the issue is that courts are hard to run. Um, and I mean, it's not that easy to like, create literally like a court. You have to create a system of law around it, right? And so uh, when we thought about it, we we saw that courts are traditionally very um, expensive. They are very slow. Like we have cases, uh, or I have seen cases where there are um, claims against like you know uh, huge corporations, and the case is very clear. But these corporations have so much money that they are able to extend it for years or decades, and then settle. Um, and that's it, right? And so I believe if we can incentivize fairness by creating a global jurisdiction, which basically has a, a court. I think the court is a core component. It's the one that makes sure that uh, you incentivize fairness or you incentivize like people to follow the system of law. We can um, empower DAOs much more. And so the idea here is, with the court, is uh, basically you can create a dispute, you can access this pool of euros that are incentivized to actually behave because of crypto economic incentives. And then the cool thing is that over time you're going to build uh, jurisprudence that is global. It's not like linked to any local jurisdiction. So you may be able to study this one uh, system of law and then basically use it anywhere in the world as a global way. And who are the jurors? Like, how are they chosen? Are they just people who hold the Aragon Network token? or? Yeah, so jurors need to stake A&T in order to uh, become participants of this network. And so jurors, like anyone, can be a juror, basically, uh, which I think it's, it's very cool. And then um, they are chosen randomly. So, for example, in the in the first round, when you open a dispute, you may be assigned five euros randomly. And then you can, if you don't agree with the result, you can basically, um, you know, raise it to like the next level. And then maybe like 21, and then more, and until you raise a dispute to like the whole network, and all the euros can participate. Um, and so that makes it very, very hard for um, anyone to try to game the system because at the end, you're just going to make it very, very expensive to you're gonna basically make it so expensive that they would have to buy the entire network or like 51% of the whole like Aragon network for them to like win a case. And I mean, you keep talking about how, you know, the normal legal jurist, uh, legal system is expensive. So how do you guys pay for your court? Hmm. Yeah, so there's like a flat subscription fee that organizations pay. And then there's like a dispute fee. And so... Wait, and do they pay the fee only when they have a dispute going or like forever? Well, we're thinking about it still. I think that there's going to be like a very small uh, kind of flat fee, like yearly flat fee kind of thing. And then uh, just like per dispute. Because I think it makes sense to have it per dispute. So um, you only pay when you really use it, right? But on the other hand, you also need to like keep the euros uh, being paid in some way because what you want to... Like these systems, the, the thing that you uh, want them to use for is... You want to have them there, so you need that you can use them, but hopefully you incentivize everyone to not use them, right? And so you need to like uh, even pay euros for doing nothing because they are just there, so you don't need to use them. I mean, you need to use them, right, at some point in time, but ideally you don't, right? It's just like everyone sees that they are going to lose money by opening a dispute, and so no one does. That's like the sort of like uh, incentive structure. That makes sense. All right, so in a moment, we're going to discuss more about governance in the Aragon Network. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Today's episode is brought to you by SimbaChain. 
Do you have a blockchain idea that could benefit your organization, but are you not sure where to begin? Then go to SimbaChain.com. SimbaChain's API-based approach simplifies blockchain for developers and provides a simple web application that empowers business analysts, domain experts, managers, and executives to design their smart contracts. SimbaChain supports Ethereum, Quorum, Stellar, and many more to come. They turn business analysts into API designers and non-blockchain developers into blockchain developers. Check out SimbaChain.com to quickly build your blockchain application. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Luis of Aragon. So the court system also has appeals. How do appeals work? Yeah, so appeals is, uh, is a system where you don't agree with the result of the of the case and you basically race to like the next round. And so it just basically grows the amount of users that are involved until it's a whole network. And but I think like one side if one side appeals and then the and then you have to put up a stake for that or something and then the other yeah. side doesn't then the the side that puts up the money automatically wins right? Yeah, you have to like basically stake more and more over time. Uh, the good thing about this though is that because I mean I'm very worried about this world where like people who don't have resources cannot appeal and so they basically lose the lose the case right. The good thing about like programmatically like creating these cases is that you can fundraise for them and so let's say there's a very clear case uh, like a David versus Goliath kind of case right um, so what David can do uh, to win the case against Goliath is uh, like he can say all right I'm going to create this DAO and this DAO is going to fundraise for for all the proceeds for my case and then I'm going to basically split uh, the the, pro- the profits with all the participants that invest in this fundraiser. And so the evidence is public, anyone can just see it, and then if people believe on it, they are like not only incentivized to make it fair, but also incentivized from an economic point of view to invest in this case. So uh, David ends up winning the case, and then they split proceeds. Very interesting. So let's also now talk about the token, because Aragon actually was first built without a token. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what the ANT token does within the system and how you justify its existence if the Aragon network actually existed before without without the token. Yeah. Well, so the history was like the following. Basically, we created Aragon, and then uh, at some point we were thinking, all right, if these centralized organizations are uh, mainstream, what comes next? Like, what are the services that we'll need? And so we identified this very important service that was the court. And I think that's actually very uh, like very useful for DAOs for one simple reason, and it's fifty-one percent attacks. Like we are seeing that with open DAOs, there is this very very easy attack that is basically, you know, um, you can say I want to propose to withdraw all the money from this DAO to this new DAO that is made out of just fifty-one percent of the participants of this original DAO, right? And then all these participants are incentivized to vote yes to take the money out. And the other, 40, the other like 49% that maybe like passive stakeholders, uh, they basically get screwed over and they cannot do anything at all. And so if you have this system of, uh, of this future solution, you can say, all right, like, um, they, these are the things that are not allowed in this DAO. And so one of them is 51% attacks. And so when someone opens a vote, anyone can dispute it and can basically stop that from happening. And so I think that's the very, very first service that will make DAOs uh, mainstream or help make them mainstream because otherwise 51% attacks could uh, like stop this uh, trend for open DAOs. But there are also other things that may like be useful for DAOs in the long term. So we are thinking about building our own uh, layer one protocol, our own like blockchain as well, uh, very optimized for the use case of DAOs. And so the idea or how we are thinking about it is ANT is useful for two things. One of them is uh, pure governance over the project. So like ANT holders right now have basically all the governance over the project. They can choose what are the development teams. They can choose proclamations. 
they can claim, uh, for example, there is like the Fight for Freedom Day, uh, February 10th, which is the day that the Argo Network DAO uh, proclaimed as like the sort of like yearly vacation for the network. They can do all of these things. And also, they will be able to basically change ANT in this bonding curve for other tokens that are like the Euros token, uh, maybe the uh, like Argon Chain token, all of these things, right? But ANT is like a pure governance token, basically. And you mentioned that you guys might try to build your own blockchain and you're currently on Ethereum. Why would you switch what what is not optimal about Ethereum for Aragon? Well, things are things in Ethereum are great uh, in terms of composability. The the problem with uh, Ethereum right now is, of course, like in terms of the roadmap, um, I would say it's not very appealing, uh, the ETH 2.0 um, roadmap. I think three years from now, it's really a lot of time. And so we are really worried about the scalability. So, for example, you know, in 2017, there was the whole like ICO craziness. And so you have one ICO and that one ICO would basically stop the network from being operational. And, and now with Argon fundraising, we are going to see that maybe multiply by like, you know, one order of magnitude more because you can open uh, a fundraise with like two clicks of this DAO fundraise money. And it's all on-chain because it's a bonding curve. So, like, basically all transactions happen on-chain. So they are even more expensive than, like, you know, the ICO craze back in 2017. And so if that happens, uh, we could have, like, serious um, scalability issues. And the problem there is that, you know, uh, like, there are two ways to do it. One of them is to optimize the whole network. Or the other one is to just optimize uh, another network that you tailor for that specific use case. And so, for example, you may um, you may make cheap or like basically free to run operations that are important for DAOs. So like one of them uh, that's very important for us is permission checking. So like does this um, does this holder have permission to like withdraw finances from the DAO? And if they don't, what is the best route that they could do it? Maybe they have tokens, maybe they can open a bot in so they can withdraw money from the DAO. All of these primitives uh, that we have in our smart contract framework called Aragon OS they could have way, way, way cheaper prices if we had our own chain. Then the, the problem there is composability. So like ideally, you have all of these protocols on Ethereum, right? And then you are able to access them from these other chains. So like a DAO can still open a CDP, a DAO can still own DAI. Uh, but that's kind of the, the rationale that, you know, you can build these chains that are very optimized for certain things and then they connect back to Ethereum for like having network effects or composability. Or security even, maybe. Yeah, Ethereum is like the most secure like smart contract network, and there is I think no doubt that it's gonna have like the maximum security compared to other like application specific chains. Um, just to go back earlier in that description, you were saying token bonding curve. Can mm. you describe what that is for people? Yeah, so if uh, if anyone is familiar with like stuff like uh, like Uniswap, like it's it's a very uh, similar concept. Um, it's basically a way in which you can exchange two tokens in a fully decentralized way. And the, the good thing about the bonding curve is that you can basically define, uh, like the demand and supply sides. So you can sort of like architect the price that it's going to take. So if there is more demand, it might go up more. Uh, and you can also basically have reserves attached to this bonding curve. So, um, let's say, for example, in Aragon fundraising, like when you, when you buy tokens into the curve, what you are doing is you're, for example, sending DAI or Ether or something into this curve. And then this curve is minting new uh, tokens for you in this DAO that is fundraising. And so uh, what happens in the, in the other way around is you sell these tokens and then you, uh, you get part of these reserves out in Ether or DAI or whatever the, the reserve ratio is defined in. And so that's how a bonding curve works. And it's very, very exciting because you can basically, um, in, in the case of Aragon fundraising, get rid of centralized exchanges. You don't need to like be listed in Binance or Coinbase or anything like that. You can just have this bonding curve and then in a decentralized way, anyone can exchange it. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like having a market that's just determined by the software. Exactly. Or something. Yeah. So then the other thing I want to ask about was you kept saying that basically um, you can build a blockchain so that certain functions are cheaper. But why can't you do that via the smart contract? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, because yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, well, the smart contracts, so like it's very, in Ethereum, for example, like everything is, uh, is very generic. And, uh, and then you have some functionalities that it's, uh, they are built um, to be faster. So the way they do that is via opcodes or precompiles, which basically means that the, the client understands certain code and instead of like running it in the virtual machine, it just runs it in a much more efficient way directly, almost like native way, right? Instead of this virtual machine. And so 
um, you can, and the whole thesis around like Polkadot, Cosmos, all of these uh, protocols is that you may be able to architect your whole chain using these things. Uh, so everything is faster and cheaper instead of running like super generic virtual machines. Of course, I think the the uh, the concept of a virtual machine is amazing because with Ethereum, you can go with anything. Like you are not constrained to what the precompiles or what the opcodes say. You can build anything. And that's the main difference with Bitcoin, right? And what made it attractive. But on the other hand, I think having the power for the whole Aragon community to also uh, basically govern what goes into a precompile, what goes into an opcode, what is optimized, what is even not optimized. Maybe there are things that we don't want to optimize for that we want to make them slower, so like we incentivize less usage of that. Uh, so I think that's a very cool concept, like reclaiming sovereignty from layer one, basically. Oh, now I'm understood. So that's why there have been all these votes around whether or not to either invest in Polkadot or build on Polkadot. Hmm. It's because you, if you do that, if you build on Polkadot, then you could have a parachain that is, oh, now I see, where it's like kind of customized for the needs of Aragon. Yeah. Exactly. And then and then DAOs can choose, right? Maybe if you are building a DAO that is all about interacting with like Compound and Dai and all of these protocols, maybe there's still a case for Ethereum uh, and you want to have super high security. It's going to be super expensive to interact with that DAO for sure. But if you want to do that, there's still a huge use case for that. But we also want to enable other use cases like, you know, organizing with my friends. Maybe I want to create a DAO with like 10 people or I want to run a fundraising and I want people to be able to put money in uh, without having to pay a dollar per transaction. Then you want to you want to enable that other set of use cases as well. Okay. I actually want to go back to ask about the the jury one more time or the court. Because I was noticing, so basically, when you were describing how the jurors come to their decision, you guys, you know, conceded that, okay, jurors might discuss the vote with each other offline. But then you also said that the juror fees are, quote, distributed proportionally among the jurors that voted for the final ruling option, mm -hmm. meaning like they basically get paid only if they vote, voted for the one that won. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, doesn't that give the jurors a financial incentive to collude? And then also, like, because, you know, uh, they have to stake the ANT, it seems like they would be incentivized to always vote in favor of what is the best for the value of their own token. But I didn't know if that could sometimes skew the outcomes in a weird way and if you found that desirable or if you even had thought that, you know, realized that that might happen. Yeah, well, first on, on collusion, the, the idea is that if that happens, we can still like, you know, kind of raise that to the next level. And then the next set of euros. Like with the appeal, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. uh, you, you do an appeal and then the next set of euros um, may not collude again. So like it may go back to like the original uh, sort of outcome that the case should have uh, had in the first place. And then for, for A&T and actually like sort of the, the incentive there. That's an interesting question, and there is uh, some research. This is not going to be in, in our uh, version one. It's, it's too complex, but um, there has been research on basically if the whole network gets corrupted um, on doing what uh, it's called like a footer key fork. So basically uh, what will happen there is that if the whole and network Actually, just is, describe for people what footer key is. Yeah, for sure. So footer key is this very cool... Uh, Almost governance mechanism, but not really, in which you basically have uh, like two different prediction markets. And so basically you, you, you predict what is going to be the winning option over uh, a certain metric. So for example, let's say uh, you are running a country. And so this country, you define that this access metric is the GDP of the country. And then you, you have like two different uh, presidents. And so um, they, you may vote or you may bet on the president that is going to increase the GDP more. And then if the president, if one president wins and then increases the GDP, you get rewarded for betting on that. And then if on the contrary, the GDP goes down, then you get a slashed or you may just not, not get rewarded for, for that outcome. And so there's this final process that is very much in research uh, right now, which is that if the whole network gets corrupted, so like ANT holders all get corrupted and there's like a 51% attack on the whole network, uh, which will be will be like very expensive, but could happen. And then you could basically split the network in two, and then uh, run a footer key market on which uh, which is going to be the ANT price uh, in the future. And so, if the if the network is incentivized to keep um, to keep running and to keep the court running, you could predict that uh, ANT price will go up if the court case is actually resolved in a rational way, right? Uh, instead of being like corrupt, and so. 
if you do that, you could basically choose a fork in which ANT is valued more because that's the one in which people are betting that the outcome was right and ditch the other one. Uh, it's like a it's like a very sort of like sci-fi um, <laughs> structure, but it's very interesting. And uh, Luke Duncan from our team proposed it a few months ago, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And wait, so just so I understand, it's sort of like like you. It, it would be like if back when um, Ethereum Classic split mm-hmm. from Ethereum, if there were like markets placed on which one, and exactly. then it, but then what would happen? So if what so whichever one has the high GDP or whatever, then then what? You kill off the other chain? Like, how, like that's not possible, right? Yeah, I mean, basically what will happen is that people just kind of migrate from one to the other. And that's it. Like, uh, you have like two different tokens, and then there is one token that accrues value, because people bet on it, and the other one who loses value and may end up being worthless. Okay, but I don't know. With ideology, some people might be convinced that they were right anyway. But anyway, okay. All right, so we've been talking a lot about governance of like the DAOs within Aragon, but then let's talk about the governance of Aragon itself because you you have a way of governing Aragon which is called AGP, which is sort of similar mm. to like an Ethereum improvement proposal or a Bitcoin improvement proposal. So describe the AGP system. Yeah, so AGPs are Aragon governance proposals and they are the ways that you can change Aragon or govern Aragon and so there is AGP0 which is the Aragon manifesto. It's like a very uh, broad mission statement about the project, which lists the values that the project has. And then there is AEP1, which is the governance process itself, like how how you can submit AEPs and get them passed and approved. And then there are just like AEPs that people are proposing. And so these AEPs may take different shapes. So one of them is like a finance track AEP, which basically uh, is around finance management and funding different teams and funding initiatives. There is a meta track, which changes the process itself, the governance process itself. And there's a proclamation track, for example, this uh, like Fight for Freedom Day uh, that I was talking about that was put in by the network. It was a proclamation. It was the network proclaiming, I want to have a, a, a national holiday, so to say. Um, and, so, and so the cool thing about these AEPs is that they get voted by the whole network and then AMT holders are free to vote and then whatever happens is executed. So right now there is a point in centralization though that I have to talk about, which is there is this legal entity in Switzerland called the Aragon Association and that one uh, right now curates proposals and uses this mechanism, this voting mechanism, as signaling for what to do. But uh, like in the end, the Aragon Association is the one that is executing these things uh, and is curating them as well. And so that's the point of centralization. And the issue why we cannot get away with it right now is because uh, the Aragon Association has to curate these proposals so they are not outright illegal, right? Because right now the Aragon Association is the one like, that has the funds uh, for taking care of the project. Um, and so he has the power over uh, these finances. And if the Aragon Association just basically sent money somewhere that was maybe illegal, then it would have been uh, held liable. How we want to change it and fully decentralize the project is actually using the Aragon court. So that one of the first use cases that we're going to have for the court is actually ourselves. We're going to transition the money, uh, the finances, the funds for the project into a DAO. And then we, uh, instead of curating that via the Aragon Association, we're just going to have this uh, sort of like manifesto and then people will be able to propose AEPs and the network like token holders may actually approve or react them for, for the ballot. So if they if the AEPs don't uh, agree or don't really empower or don't really um, follow the Aragon manifesto then you can open a dispute and basically they don't go to the vote. So that's how we plan to decentralize the process entirely. Okay, there's so much to unpack there, but basically, so the Aragon Association is sort of like the Ethereum Foundation in Switzerland. Exactly. Where essentially it has control of the funds from the crowd sale. Yeah. But then there are like literal people that have signed on as directors where mm-hmm. in Switzerland, if you know you guys do anything out of line with the uh, mission of the association, then you can be held personal, be personally liable. Yeah. So now you want to uh, decentralize that into, um, did you say it was a smart contract or a DAO? It's a DAO, yeah. But like... So what I didn't get was this part where people vote and then then you uh, disperse the funds based on how they vote. So how does that happen? Because it like hmm. to my mind, it would seem like you would need a multi-sig, but then there's like people in control of that multi-sig. Yeah. So. Well, we want to decentralize the funds as well. So like the DAO would be one having the funds. The okay, right. But then, but then for the DAO to make a transaction, who who initiates that? 
And the good thing is that the, like the governors of this DAO would be AMD holders. So AMD holders initiate the, the vote. And then if uh, the support threshold um, is, is passed and the vote passes, then it automatically gets executed and the money goes out. Like the, like the smart contract does it? or Exactly. Yeah. Like it's just coded? Yeah. Okay, so people vote, like, let's give Laura 100% of the tokens, exactly. then, and that passes, then, like, what? Then then it happens. So the smart contract sees, okay, it's passed. Hmm. Oh, okay, so, so I get it. So then whoever makes the proposal, they're proposing a piece of code where it's like, if such and such, then move the money to, to Laura's address, something like that? Yeah, it, it's pretty much like that, yeah. Like oh, when okay. you create, when you open a DAO these days and you create like a finance proposal, for example, what you are saying is, I my intent is to get money from this place to this other place, and I want to get you know maybe a hundred ANT, like you know token and also amount, and then when it's passed, then automatically like the smart contract basically executes that intent. Okay, so this has happened multiple times now in the conversation, but it's very good because we're, you keep like answering the question almost before I get there. Um, cause my next question was asked, was to ask about your, uh, ideal governance here, which you remember I asked you about in the beginning. And I was wondering how Aragon currently falls short. So that seems like one way, but are there any other ways where you feel like Aragon, you know, needs to make other changes to get closer to your ideal? One interesting conversation we're having in the Aragon community right now is around, locked voting and rewards for voting. So there was this very uh, interesting AEP that happened, I think, in the in the last vote or in the previous one, which was uh, about Aragon buying dots uh, on Polkadot. And there was... Which was um, just because you guys wanted to invest like $1.5 million into dots, right? Something yeah, it was like something that? like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and so... And so that, that, was, that was a very interesting proposal um, because basically it didn't... Uh, pass at the end, uh, but then there was this proposal called AEP42, which was about uh, not building Aragon on Polkadot. So there was uh, Amin from like Spankchain and, and Moloch uh, proposed that one and that one. He was on Unchained, in case people missed that episode, you should listen to it. It's very good. Okay. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, so there was AEP42, which was about um, like Aragon not building on, on Polkadot. And Amin posted this tweet like, you know, who can lend me 1 million ANT so I can like sway the boat. I can vote uh, on my proposal and I can get it passed, right? Uh, and the issue with tokens right now is that they are tradable. So, I mean, it's not an issue, right? It's just like um, a functionality they have, but you can buy them. And if they, they are used for governance, you may be able to sway the, the result of the boat. And so there's this idea about locked voting, which is uh, you lock your tokens for maybe a year and you get a reward for voting. So you get more voting power. You lock them for four years, you get even more. You lock them for 100 years, you get even more. And so the idea there is that you want to have people in your community that are really incentivized for the long term of the project. So the more they lock their tokens, the more incentivized they are for the like long term outcomes and not the short term ones. So you prevent uh, communities or having communities which are made of like, you know, pump and dumpers, basically, which is, happens a lot in the crypto space. And so that's one interesting conversation. The other one is around rewarding votes, so rewarding people who vote, maybe via inflation. But then you have the problem of random voting. So like you don't want to incentivize people to just go there and like random vote whatever they, uh, they want to vote. They, you need to make sure that they read and they understand it. And so maybe a combination of rewards plus locked voting would be an ideal way to actually incentivize people to stay and take decisions in the long term. And then just so I understand, so for the locked votes, like the longer you lock them, then the more weight your vote has? That would be idea, yeah. Okay, so it's similar to... Um the lock drop that Edgeware was doing where you yeah. get more tokens the longer you lock them up. Well, one other thing that I wanted to ask about was, so voter participation has so far been low. Like on that, for the one, so that vote in the spring on whether or not to buy dots at all, hmm. less than 5% of all tokens were used in that vote. So how do you plan to get higher levels of participation? Well, I think there are multiple ways to achieve that. One of them is user experience. I think right now it just takes money to vote. Uh, it's a very long process. And also, if there are like 10 proposals on the ballot, some of them are very complex and you need to like study them. So it takes a lot of time. It literally takes like a full day for an Aragon community member to study them and vote accordingly. So that's, that's, that could be enhanced way more. I think also delegated voting will help. So we're planning to implement that. 
um, so you can delegate your votes to someone else, and then they, they can they can put. I think in the future it will be less uh, of a direct democracy but, and more as like a representative. I think that's I mean that, that's where the um, the world um, has been going for the last hundreds of years, right? We have like these representative democracies, and so I think that's great. But these new systems also allow you to vote directly if you don't want to go through like these intermediaries, right? So I think that's great. And also with uh, with this liquid democracy, you are able to basically delegate, and then um, if the representative is doing something wrong, you can automatically delegate to another one. You don't have to wait for four years for year terms. And so I think that's super interesting to increase participation uh, turnout. On the other hand, I have to say, I think we are very obsessed with participation and we shouldn't focus on that so much. We should focus on the outcome of the decisions. And so if you look at the Argo network and the outcomes of their decisions, so far it's been like amazing. Like I'm really amazed by there hasn't been any major like decision that has impacted the project in a, in a negative way. And so I think the important part is the decision outcome and not the participation rate necessarily. Well, one thing also is that at this moment, there's not a lot of usage of the network. Like there are a few, fewer than 700 organizations mm. in Aragon so far. And then there's even like less than $1 million in Aragon smart contracts. So what are your plans to get more adoption? That's a great question. I think that's one of the main problems of this space. Like we are building technology that is very idealistic, but the issue is how to get like actual like mainstream users. I think fundraising will really help. It's a use case that I love. Um, Aragon fundraising... It's actually, I think, the, the best way to fundraise from anywhere in the world and then uh, do it in an accountable and transparent way. So I think that will really um, have a lot of adoption in the, in the short term. We're also launching a new version that is going to make it way easier for people to use Aragon in terms of user experience. So I think that will really help as well. I think there is one missing piece, which is onboarding, like crypto onboarding and like uh, private keys and all of these things. And I'm very excited to see that more and more products are taking on it. Because ideally, like you don't need to remember private keys. You don't need to install MetaMask. You just like use it like a Web2 app almost. And so I think that will really help adoption as well. Focusing on niche use cases and kind of hand-holding users, this is something that I'm very excited about and we have started doing more and more. And because there is where you see the struggles that people are having. And, and so... I think that will really help in the medium term. I think in the short term, it's actually very tough uh, to get mainstream adoption. I think even what we are seeing is that people are using Aragon in the crypto scene more than mainstream right now because the crypto people actually understand way better why why they need it, right? So we had this example of like a Melon Protocol which launched their token sale time ago and they built the protocol. Wait, and Melon? Yeah, Melon. Oh, she was on my, Mono was on my show too. Nice, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they are great. And so I think as of like a, as of a few days ago, actually, they transitioned their whole um, governance to, a, to an Aragon DAO. Oh, wow. So they have this DAO of token holders, and these token holders vote a council, and this council can upgrade the smart contracts. So that's adoption right there. But I think we're going to see mainstream adoption more in the medium, long term, and not so much in the short term. I think in the short term, crypto adoption is going to be the, the most powerful. Yeah, yeah. When I was researching this, I was like, this is getting really futuristic. And I was like, you know, this this isn't like something that people are really you know, using a lot now. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting. And uh, I did another episode with like Glenn Weil or Glenn Weil mm -hmm. and um, Santiago Siri and some of the ideas were similar. So we, you kind of mentioned something about this, but I wanted to ask you directly. Um, so and this is actually something I'm not certain about, but I did read somewhere that you personally have a large percentage of ANT. Hmm. I could not verify that. I tried to figure that out, but I couldn't. So you can correct me if I'm wrong. But regardless, like, do you think in general the concept of whales adversely affects governance? And if so, how you know would you guys uh, try to address that? Yeah, well, I think there is uh, a lot of hate against like plutocracy, and I think on one hand, like that's understandable, but on the other hand, having people who have like a strong skin in the game is actually very good. Like, I think if you if you put up if you're a BC fan, for example, and you put up um, a significant amount of your portfolio to just buy a token because you really believe in the future of it, uh, then I mean, capital at the end of the day is like um, how you stake in the systems, if you will. So, like, if you build that position over time you, of course, deserve like, to govern it in, in some way. I think the confusion comes in where uh, when we talk about common goods versus not common goods. And so 
And I think actually I had a, I had an interesting discussion yesterday about this, uh, where someone was arguing that Bitcoin and Ethereum were not protocols because protocols are just standards and standards are free. So with Bitcoin and Ethereum, you need to like you know buy to to be part of it. So I think actually what we are seeing um, is that what we call protocols uh, are not protocols; they are networks, and they are as I see them, they are like a next version or next generation shareholder governance. So. In traditional corporate, you have shareholders and they govern the whole system. Usually, they are, um, you know, very institutionalized. And uh, we have like companies like Apple, Google, which um, had a lot of like early investors back in the day, which basically um, kind of had all the, all the all the growth, all the upside from these networks. And now with Bitcoin, Ethereum, we're seeing that more and more retail uh, investors are getting in, and they are also profiting from these huge networks that have been built in the early beginning. And I think that's the beauty of it. Like they are much more open. They are much more fluid. You don't need to be an accredited investor. You don't need to be a VC to access it real, uh, like, like real quick or in the very, very beginning of the project. Like if you look at Bitcoin, for example, it wasn't busy firms that got Bitcoin at $1. It was cypherpunks, people who were buying drugs. It was like completely different crowd. And I think that's like the way of, to look at it. It's like an extended version of shareholder governance, like a next generation shareholder governance and not so much Common goods, although it also has a little bit of a common good, but I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't look at it that way as of right now, at least. Yeah, the one comment I have that about that is I think there were some wealthy people who got in at a dollar, but I won't name them on the podcast. Okay. Um, but anyway, uh, actually, so I actually wanted to just ask more directly about that issue with the polka dot vote. And you kind of addressed it with a locked voting, but I didn't know if there was like anything else you would add. But basically, um, so just for people who don't know, uh, and I can't remember if we described on the show, but basically there was this vote, you know, should we stay focused on Ethereum or should we also develop on Polkadot? And as the vote was going along, it seemed like the sentiment was to stay vote uh, developing on Ethereum. And then at the very last minute, somebody put in a ton of tokens to sway the vote in the other direction where like it would be really impossible in a short amount of time to overcome the, the tokens they'd put in. So would the locked voting solve that or is are there any other solutions you guys are thinking of? Yeah, to be more specific, like the vote, uh, the outcome of the vote was like no, but like I think it was like 1% uh, more no than yes. And then this whale made it like way, you know, more kind of no than, than yes in the end, but it was already no. Uh, I think with locked voting, you may be able to solve it. But I don't think it's an issue. Like in this particular case, I was trying to like identify who this person was, um, and I, I I couldn't. And that's that's the beauty of it. But I was trying to identify it, like just going to Ether Scan and seeing what tokens they hold, they held, and all of that. And and it was like a like an OG, like an Aragon OG. So like uh, this person was in the community for a long time. And so I think with logboarding, you actually like maybe even this person uh, has more power. Um, but you know they were an OG. I think they. I don't know if they bought in the market on the. Uh, I cannot remember. But definitely, I think you know if if they have bought this share of their of their cake, I think they sort of legitimate that they vote. Okay, so so you don't have any other ways to kind of prevent the gaming of the system in this way, or do you not see it as gaming? Well, there is there is one way. I don't see it as gaming, to be honest. But there is one way uh, that you can prevent this kind of last minute votes. Like I think the issue is last minute votes, right? In the in the last minute, someone basically uh, changing the outcome, and so you can have this mechanism for voting that's actually also been. Uh, um, kind of discussed in the community, which is that if there's a significant change in in Manser in the last um, like minutes or hours, or if there is like a significant amount of votes, um, you can extend the period of time of that vote for like 24 hours or uh, 40 years, something like that, and then uh, do that again and again and again until like basically there are no um, like final last minute votes. And then uh, at that point, it's like the final outcome is revealed. So I think the stuff like that may help. Also like um, kind of lock and, and reveal voting uh, where votes are not transparent by default, but you have to like, you know, commit first and then reveal it at the end. And then like all votes are public, but use at the end and not uh, like real time. I think that could help. And um, obviously you and I were here this week in Berlin for Web3 and DAPCON. So d did you guys present anything or like what, what milestones will people be looking at going forward? Yeah, so uh, my co-founder Jorge presented the Argon network, and it was it was so cool because like it, the room was so packed. It was it was really amazing to see like the interest on on a court uh, system, which like two years ago was sci-fi, and no one really believed that could be like you know done. Uh, then I had the opening keynote at the Web3 Summit, and the Web3 Summit this year was very much about DAOs. Like it was kind of crazy. It was 
it was me and then Ryan Server presenting uh, some ideas around uh, very interesting DAOs that are coming up. Then there was a DAO panel. Then it was Yalda from one of the Aragon development teams uh, called Autark presenting their Aragon apps and their suite for like Aragon organization. So it was pretty much about DAOs, and I'm super excited because like. I think, you know, we saw this trend coming, but we didn't see the interest so much in the community these past two years or so. I think the stigma on the DAO was still being carried around. And I think now we are like liberating ourselves from that and we are ready to like, you know, do like the DAO 2.0 kind of thing, right? So I'm super, super excited about it. Uh, and then we also presented the Aragon design system, which is our take on enhancing consistency across all the Aragon platform and making sure that Aragon app developers can easily design uh, new apps by like basically dragging and dropping components. Yeah, so a couple things. So I wanted to do this show partially because I know everybody's talking about DAOs again. So I was like, okay, this is like a good way to kind of, you know, be on trend. But then the other thing was that actually it's funny that we mentioned this space thing before because Yaldov's hmm. um, idea is about governance in space. Yeah. Like she, she wants to, what was it? It's like something like, uh, it's like a decentralized organization to explore space or something. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a decentralized SpaceX, basically. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's funny that that was a theme in this episode. Well, anyway, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Yeah, thanks, Laura. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Luis and Aragon, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, which is shorter and a bit newsier, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Rich Struffolino. Thanks for listening.